Welcome to Feminist Question Time. It's brought to you by Women's Declaration International, the leading global organisation defending women's sex-based rights against the threats posed by gender identity ideology. There's more information on the website womensdeclaration.com where you'll find our Declaration on Women's Sex-Based Rights, which has been signed by 29,187 people from 157 countries and is supported by 418 organisations. As well as signatories, we have activists in 51 countries. If you'd like to get involved, um, you can email those, uh, those country contacts via the website, or if there isn't one, you could uh, offer to be the country contact for your country. The Declaration on Women's Sex-Based Rights was launched in 2019, and it's a women's collective effort to protect our sex-based rights from the harm done by gender, the replacement of the category of sex with that of gender identity. Since then, we have grown into a global organisation and we've decided our name should reflect our global reach. So from this month onwards, our, we've changed the name to women, from Women's Human Rights Campaign to Women's Declaration International. Um, our goals remain the same, the protection of women and girls' sex-based rights. This week, I'm really pleased to say that we have Anne R from Brazil. She's going to talk about mothers, their children and feminism. We have Nina from Canada, who's going to be talking about employment equity versus merit to self-identity, Canada hat-tricking the co-opt. We have Blondine Dessange from France. The count of femicides is now under attack in France because it's seen as transphobic. She will tell us about that. And we have Anna Cleves and Leila Namarkton from the UK. They're going to give us some news from the UK and information about the erosion of single sex wards, conversion therapy, and more. We're going to hear uh, first from Anne R from Brazil, an immigrant mother, woman, artist, activist, and mother of three. Born in Brazil, she was a member of several activist communities and movements focused on social and environmental regeneration, always centering women, especially mothers, children, and nature. With solid background in mobilisation, campaigning and culture hacking, Anne is currently living in the UK and always committed to the future of life on planet Earth from the perspective of care and collaboration. So it's the first time you've come on Feminist Questions. And thank you so much for coming. I am not an academic. I am not someone from... Um traditional background of feminist studies. Everything that you're gonna see today is based on the story of being a woman um, inside patriarchy. So this is me when I was born. I was born in 79. Uh, you saw that I put my name here on an R and that was part of my fear of being um, recognized as a feminist uh, in this day and age. So yeah, that's my my full name name uh, Anne Rummy. I'm originally Brazilian and living in the UK now. And having born, uh, having been born in the early uh, '80s, uh, speaks a lot about uh, what happened to me and who I am. I am evidently a girl. I was born a girl. No surprise there. And having been born a girl uh, meant uh, loads of things, as you all know. This is me when I was three years old. And this is a presentation at the school uh, uh, that I was honoring 
Mother's Day. So yeah, that's what you can see. That's what happened to me. That's how socialization started in my life. To honor my mom, I was dressed up as um, what you can call a maid. And so were my colleagues. I have no recollection what happened to the boys uh, in that uh, day. You will see that my role was to iron clothes as a mother. And in that tiny tag there, with my mother's handwriting, it says housewife. So the idea of being a, a, a woman uh, was pretty clear uh, ever since I was a child. But something weird happened. And instead of getting used to that idea, I, I got completely revolted. And I am a fem I can I consider myself a feminist ever since that day. Uh, I, I found absolutely outrageous, outrageous that uh, I was raised like that. This is the first decade of my life. I was a, a kid. And then uh, as a teenager, I just dealt with the with everything that happened uh, from being a, a, a woman, a girl, for, from turning uh, into girlhood to womanhood. Uh, but it was basically around 2010, so uh, in my third decade as a, a woman that I realized what that meant. And that came from being a mom. I turned a mother, I turned into a mother in 2010 under the circumstances that we call uh, obstetric violence. This is my belly. It was photographed by an artist in Brazil that has a project that's called One Fourth. Her name is Carla Heiter, and she discusses obstetric violence um, with women uh, in Brazil. I'm not sure how much you all know about the circumstances, but it is pretty um, fair to say that we are all born in pain. Uh, the scenery of the, uh, the way of the, the children are born, born and mothers are, are treated worldwide is outrageous. It's an absolute scandal. And this is what made me understand the exact context of having been born a woman in a female body and having exerted my reprodu reproductive capacities. I'm here today um, to talk a little bit, I mean, this is a very open conversation about the impacts of male violence on mothers and children, which is something that we haven't been discussing, in my opinion, quite uh, honestly enough. So next slide, please. I'm going to use some data from Brazil. This is where I come, come from. And I really encourage you to uh, check out uh, how is how is that situation going in your own country? Uh, even though we speak about uh, obstetric violence and we have uh, good research on it, it is quite common that uh, women, when they uh, are questioned about the situation uh, they faced during their, their moments of uh, bringing the, their children to the world, that they always describe that they did not suffer any, any sort of violence. So if you ask women, uh, have you been through violence? They will say no. And then if you ask women, were you tied up? They will say yes. Were you shushed? They will say yes. Uh, did the doctor climb upon you? They would say yes. So 45% of women in Brazil uh, declare that they uh, have 
suffered obstetric violence. 55% of births in Brazil are, are cesareans, even though we know this, this is not uh, a normal number. Uh, normally, uh, around 20%, 15 to 20% of women would need surgery for uh, their uh, births. 56% go through episiotomies and 36% go through percent of women go uh, when they have vaginal labors go through crystaller. Uh, next slide, please. I'm not sure if you get the meaning of uh, episiotomy. This is what it means, episiotomy. is a cut in the perineal area. Uh, completely, there is no scientific evidence whatsoever that this is needed for uh, to, to help the, the birth of a child. So it's completely not recommended. There is no evidence and it's done worldwide. Uh, another name for this could be uh, genital mutilation. And this evidently happens only to mothers. Uh, another, uh, the, the next image shows what crystallar means. This is when the doctor climbs on top of the mother or someone in the health uh, team that is supporting the birth, literally pushing the baby away. There's also no evidence that this is helpful. On the contrary, ev evidence has been showing that this is harmful and can deeply hurt uh, not only the mother, but also the baby. This is uh, widely uh, done in, in Brazil. That's the context in which mothers are treated and babies are born. I would like to invite this reflection that we live in a society that is being born under male violence. The first information that, this, uh, that our children receive, that we received is uh, violence. And it's violence completely created by the idea that women are not human. So it's male violence, right? I invite you also to look for Carla Heiter's work. Uh, these are other images, of course, that I am not the only person that she photographed. And I like this set of images because it speaks a lot about what we women carry in our bodies when we become mothers. These are, they are in Portuguese, but they are horror stories about, that are forever tattooed in us somehow. Some of them leave scars and some of the scars are only emotional. Only emotional. I'm not sure, uh, I just wanted to bring this slide just to uh, bring a context on how big Brazil is. So I like that image. If you can see there are all the uh, names of countries that would fit in each one of the states. Um, I am from a, a state that is called Sao Paulo where you can read UK there. And there are 210 million people in Brazil. Um, uh, 54 million are under 18, and there are 67 million mothers in, in Brazil. That's a lot of people, yay. Uh, since I am talking about motherhood, I thought of bringing some data, and evidently later I can, I mean, in numbers, just so you to get the context of what it means to be a mother in my culture, 6% of the children, so from all those uh, 54, uh, 54 million children, 6% of them have no fathers in their birth certificate. Whereas 37 of the, a percent of the mothers raise their children alone. And I would risk 
there's no evidence to that. But I would risk to say that the other 63 also raised their children alone, Porque, like, let, let's face it, that, that men are kind of useless in the realm of taking care of human life. Uh, not all men, I know, but in Brazil, 47% of uh, homes have mothers as householders. So not housewives, householders, 63% of those are below the poverty threshold. I would, I, I cannot um, make sense of how is this not being deeply discussed in every country, you know, in every uh, conversations about economy. How is this not being discussed? I want to insist that the treatment that society uh, gives to mothers and children is pure male, male violence. Throughout my journey as a mother, as a woman, and as an activist, I've worked in many, with many uh, different subjects and themes. I did, I did many different um, sorts of jobs related to activism around reproductive rights, breastfeeding, independent media, community building, childhood safeguarding, occupation of public spaces, random things that I've done. I got some pictures there, beautiful pictures, but everything to say that all that I've done, I've done using the ancient technology of the circle of women. And I'm going to take a digression here. I'm going to go somewhere and, and, and tell you that I have a theory that we are going under extinction. Uh, there's no turning back. And one of the reasons is that uh, patriarchy has won. But there's one thing, and one thing only that he couldn't, uh, patriarchy couldn't destroy, which is the circle of women. Women are always and have always organized somehow. And I've seen for the past 12 years, how is it that there's nothing that can stop women for, from sitting together, putting the children in the middle and creating solutions for the problems that are around them. So this speaks about community. Everything that I've done so far was done like, uh, was done it, with women in a circle. And my, and my hypothesis is that if we want to spend the rest of our uh, lives here on planet earth as a collective humankind, this is the technology that we should be looking into. How is it that we create these circles? And this is evidently what we are doing here today is definitely one of them. Uh, but listening to women and, and hearing their stories and, and evidently these, um, these circles and these conversations and these movements were always informed by feminism. I have recognized there, uh, these women would tell me stories that uh, really scared me in terms of how, uh, in the name of feminism, they would um, basically hurt their children. And that was something that I have been observing for 12 years now. This is the name for that. They call it uh, the transferring of oppression. So it means that if I feel oppressed by patriarchy and um, I am... I, and. and to be free, so to feel free from patriarchy, I should just transfer the oppression that I feel to someone that, that is more vulnerable than I am. And this helped, and this happens a lot in the realm of feminism and motherhood. So uh, instead of, uh, of dismantling and, and looking to the bigger picture and, and, and looking to the 
wider uh, reasons for their oppression, mothers informed by feminism would um, hurt their children. And by hurt, I mean lack of care, physically hurt, uh, abandonment, emotional abandonment. Uh, there's a trend nowadays that speaks ill of children, that openly speaks about hating children in the name of some sort of uh, freedom for women. That is wrong. I want to suggest that compulsory motherhood and everything that we expect from mothers in terms of uh, social behavior is not completely disconnected from our sexed bodies. Once I heard that, not once I heard, I've heard this many times, that women just um, birth their children. And this is the only thing that is connected to our sex bodies. And caring for their children has nothing to do with our sex bodies. I want to dispute this idea. It is not true. Anyone who has been a mother and has uh, nursed their babies and has seen a newborn and how much they need us, their mothers, anyone who has experienced that can confirm what I, what I am saying. There is a reason why babies need their mothers and it's not social. It's not a social construct. I have realized that people in the name of women liberation would suggest, for instance, that a bottle is better for a baby because they, are, uh, so they think they are informed by feminism, but they are actually informed by capitalism. Uh, this is an old propaganda from Nestlé in Brazil, and it's a mother there, and it says, Leite Ninho, o melhor do mundo. That means uh, powder milk, the best in the word, world, which is a lie. Uh, human milk, breast milk, mother milk is the milk for the baby, not cow milk. This is obvious. There's no, we don't need research on that. Obvious. It's obvious. Humans are the only, uh, the only uh, mammals that would drink other species' milk. I just want to say that if something that is uh, supposedly liberating women is supporting capitalism, that's not feminism. This is the value of the global dairy market. We are talking about 800 billion a year by uh, suggesting that mothers will be free if they uh, feed their babies with artificial milk and uh, give money to Nestle. If you need data on that, you can go to UNICEF. So they would say, and there's uh, many, many studies on that, on how the uh, breastfeeding babies would be something quite important. And I'm not, not going romantic here. I'm, 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 I'm talking babies need their mothers. Babies need their mother's bodies. And that's not, not a social construct. So, so Anne, I'm just uh, saying you've got one minute left. Okay. So just, just so you know that. Woo. 
Okay. So There's, you you can carry on in the breakout rooms and talk talk Great. to the women who go there later. So just say one one more thing, maybe. Okay. So um I'll I'll and I'll just wrap it up here. Um with a breastfeeding bit. I had um, I had much more, I am sorry. <laughs> but um we are talking about saving children's lives. And we are talking about giving money on one hand to the dairy industry industry, and on the other hand, to the pharmaceutical industry, because stopping mothers from breastfeeding and making them believe that this is liberation uh, supports capitalism and not feminism and not motherhood and not childhood. I have more to say and I will carry on carry out on the breakout room. I just want to finalize saying that what I heard this uh, feminist here in the UK saying that some universities are doing the trans um, the, the trans day, Remembrance Day, where they read names of uh, transvestites that were murdered um, in, in South America or something like that. 175 transvestites were murdered in Brazil last year. And Brazil is a country that kills one child every hour from 10 to 19 years old from 10 to 90, 19 years old. So by the time we finish this conversation to, today, two kids in Brazil would have been murdered. And I don't see universities here in the UK doing the Brazilian Kids Remembrance Day, the same, the same way they are committed to uh, exploit, evidently it's horrible murdering people. But what is it that we, why is it that we're not pay, paying attention to mothers and children? I was going to get to a point where I would uh, make clear that mothers are being harassed by what is called feminist, feminism, but it's not, and they fall there. And, they, and this uh, liberal type of thinking has them. And us as feminists that are more radicalized, if you know what I mean, uh, should be looking into that group, the mothers, because they're so vulnerable in terms of uh, the type of discourses that they will um, accept. And uh, they, their influence is massive because it's about themselves as women and they also care for their children. So we are talking about like a, a double thing here. So we're gonna to go to our next speaker now, who is Nina from Canada, 1990s Dyke, who is a news editor at Angles or Angeles, the Lesbian Adventures Vancouver chapter. Um, oh, Angles, yeah. The December the 9th Coalition, the Gay and Lesbian Vancouver Stroke Police, Vancouver Police Liaison Committee, the Vancouver Women's Health Collective, before being a federal civil service employee. In 1998 was uh, the first Pride Marching Unit, so of that thing, of the federal government's employees. Um, Nina has disability retirement, returned to activism and, in, and is filing at the BC human rights level and awaiting a Supreme Court of Canada file number. Um, Nina started life as an ordinary Canadian. <laughs> okay, so thank you so much, Nina, for coming on and you're gonna to talk to us now, so over to you. Yes, I was uh, born in the era where observed females had lesser rights and in the mid 80s, Canada um, did the Charter of Rights and separated from England after the Canadian suffragettes failed to get the vote at the Canada Supreme Court and got the vote for women on, upon appeal to the British court. 
So Canada didn't want our courts to be overturned. And so we separated and the Charter of Rights was supposed to include marriage equality in the 1980s. So um, when it was, <laughs> When it was actually signed for a while, um, I, I graduated high school afterwards. So for a brief while, I had equal rights on paper until I began dating and didn't have any. This is a picture of me uh, in the middle of my government career. And that is a stress ball that um, I was one of many who was given out these stress balls during public service appreciation week. Um, employment equity was in Canada and affirmative action was in the US and the idea was to alter the outcomes and equalize the access to opportunities for four particular designated groups. And I'm going to say them in the reverse order that they are normally said to make it very pointed. It is indigenous, disabled, visible minority and women you can pick one category. When the, uh, we can go to the next slide, um, the employment equity um, was done because of the um, oppression by heterosexuals. And what we're looking at here is um, in the nineties when I was the news editor, one of the news editors of Angles, um, Angles published from 1980 until 2004, and it started as the gay and lesbian paper. And this is uh, the issue that bisexual was added uh, to the Angles gay and lesbian. And this paper was primarily gay men the entire time. And this is a cover where I happen to be on the cover um, uh, for the issue. And the article on bisexual was the very first time the paper ever had a reprint request. And so this was an article about bisexuality in amongst gay and lesbians that bisexuals are not tourists, they are a unique sexual orientation. Um, and these are alternate pictures that we're gonna be used on the cover because this was the decade that the public in Canada found out that gays and lesbians were kept in the concentration camps at all and not released after World War II. Um, so the pictures are showing the one I would have liked to have been picked was the one with the triangle in the tree. And then these are just the, the other two pictures are uh, me and the other model um, looking at different books. And um, so this decade, Little Sisters was having censorship. And this is where the Butler decision about pornography um, came into play with censorship. And because most pornography is based on a heterosexual model of male exploiting females and the Supreme Court couldn't cope with there was gay male porn that did not include women and that there was lesbian porn that was actually made by for with by and for lesbians that didn't actually um, involve heterosexuality and so this is so we're, where we're going a little bit now with transgender because this is where we get into the who is doing the hate crime. Um, heterosexual men are the ones who invented the words homophobia and transphobia to explain that they had assaulted, sexually assaulted or murdered someone as reasonable for being in the same room as a person who had particular demographic characteristics. And um, the murdering of people uh, who are in the street, who are not white because white people are afraid of them is the in public practice 
of that homophobia and transphobia that it tends to occur more in bedroom type situations. So applying the trans uh, lobby attempting to call anyone transphobic for not dating a trans person is a huge misuse of the word. And the government of Canada in 2016, when they passed the trans rights, they were actually passing special rights, not human rights. Human rights relate to the whole person, which I'm going to go back to employment equity. Um, so the Indigenous, disabled, and visible minority groups includes men. And the word heterosexual is left off this list because this was primarily to address between heterosexual oppression and gay and lesbians was only after court cases. In Canada, we didn't have, we had to fight for military um, service. We had to fight for marriage equality. We had to fight for divorce equality, as well as work and education access. And having those things in law has been completely undermined by self-identity because the characteristics for which we were oppressed now are being claimed as hate crimes against trans and previously bisexuals and lesbians and gays had been able to be in the room with trans people and now being called bigots, we don't really have a reason to be. Um, also, just one last note of angles. It took me three months to get the collective to agree to add bisexual. And it was my understanding after I left the collective that the trans activist who added transgender to angles um, did so by letting every uh, offering to take the paper to press and just making the change after everyone else left and it was never voted for and agreed to and then it couldn't be undone afterwards. Okay, so this is the uh, this is about policing and so this article there was a Vancouver there was a gay and lesbian slash Vancouver police liaison committee in the 90s. And it was actually the police who insisted on the slash because they were aware, they were unaware of slash fan fiction and the whole, you know, the cops are beating us up and some of us are cops and there's a whole, you know, the village people fetishization of, you know, job things. <laughs> yes, so the, yeah, and so this, this other picture, police complaints talk to Opal. Um, that's a picture of Wally Opal. He was the justice minister in the 90s and he was later premier of the province of BC. And in the 90s, he did a report um, where the minister, where the police were really not able to deal with domestic violence situations between non-heterosexual couples. And when I later worked at RCMP, I took his report and was able to actually add gay and let, well, gay was already on the domestic abuse form, oddly, in the 1980s. And then in 1999, I was able to add lesbian, bi, and transgender um, to that form. So this is where in the 90s we had AIDS was going on. Uh, the upper picture is uh, the prostitute murder opens debate. This, this was a trans activist, Jamie Lee Hamilton, who's actually passed away. And um, there's a, a whole number of other ones that have you know, fought for the whole bathroom thing and went after, uh, well, in the US, the Michigan Women's Festival was under uh, you know, improper application of human rights. In Canada, it was the Vancouver Rape Relief and other women's organizations. And uh, in the 90s, I was also a volunteer at the Vancouver Women's Health Collective. I returned to the Health Collective in 2001 to discover that the Women's Health Collective no longer does anything to, with women's health, which is where I first learned about this uh, item up in the top here. It's an anti-rape relief condom. So a woman would wear this and it's got barbs and spikes on the inside. So if she's raped, the male has to go to a hospital to get that device removed. Employment equity was set up 
to help um, the, the categories. And in the indigenous, disabled, visible minority, what happens in those meetings is the men are at the table and the women make the coffee and at the women's group, which is not specified to be white heterosexual, which it primarily is, it means the white women sit at the table and the other women make the coffee. And when the federal government began to recognize and include gay and lesbian employees and benefits, the employment equity groups did not want the budget to be divided by five or there to be a fifth group. So the government created a separate program called diversity, in which case they could avoid using the words gay and lesbian. And it was in that capacity, I was in the first committee at Revenue Canada, when that was still an agency, it's now, um, uh, when it was still a Crown Department, now it's an agency. Um, they, they, we were allowed to march in the pride parade and the department did by the banner and we were the first government group, there was eight of us who were marching in a pride parade and we were not there to ask for money or votes and we actually weren't a community, community group, what we represented was hope and inclusion because this was a few years after the federal government had stopped actually purging the federal government of, you know, gay and lesbian employees from the 1950s until 1992. And when the federal government of Canada, we had an election in 2007 and it changed to the Harper government. The Harper government undermined women's equality by removing equality from the status of women and undermined all the women's nonprofit groups. Well, at the same time, the trans lobby began suing women's groups to get into those spaces. And so trans rights, rather than protecting trans from heterosexual men, ended up applying against women. And this is where they were special rights because it puts ideas above whole person oppression and allows the co-opting. And um, really we should not be indulging in this, the preferred pronouns because it really is woman face and it's not up for a man to self-identify and say he knows what it's like to be a woman and tell women what it's like to be women. I'm waiting for a Supreme Court number to take all of this to the Supreme Court because I lost my career owing to heterosexual oppression and then now the government changed the rules so now and there's no way for me to go out in public space because now we don't, we don't have demographics to belong to and communities. And you know, not only you know, having a stranger walk up to you and tell you that you're a bigot because you don't wanna date them and you don't even know them is absolutely ridiculous. And it's, it's, it's just beyond comprehension. I was a Vancouver Women's Health Collective volunteer in the 90s. I returned there in 2021 to discover non-binary trans have taken it over and cultural side has happened. 50 years of health information for women has been shredded as well as every woman who ever reported about the problems with doctors. So the doctors who are, you know, so this is basically trans are now supporting doctors by ending women's healthcare information and ending women collecting information on doctors and challenging doctors who can only observe. They are ordinary people. They assign nothing. They can observe and measure only. Yeah, same-sex marriage was used by people who were against marriage equality to invoke gay male anal sex to do disgust. And that's why same gender marriage or just the word marriage was done by proponents. And so this is where gender is about sex, so it can't be separated. Okay, we're going to move on now to Blondine Dessange, who is from France. Blondine is a French teacher teaching economy and sociology in high school. She's a radical feminist and activist, very attached to freedom of conscience and expression, um, which is a reason, another reason to speak here. Uh, Blondine is going to talk to us about how the 
counting of femicides is now under attack in France because it's seen as transphobic. So thank you so much for coming on. Bienvenue and over to you, Blondine. I am a feminist and a women's rights activist. This means that I am active in well-known associations and also in if informal collectives and that we allow ourselves all kinds of actions to advance the rights and the situation of women in France and around the world. As for the Women's Declaration International, I have been an activist there for more than one year and I participate with other women in a podcast we created, which allows gender critical women to testify on gender ideology, on their impact on their lives, and on the dangers of trans activism. If some of you are French speaking, please subscribe to our podcast on social medias. We are the rebelles du genre, gender rebels. I am going to tell you about a recent event in France, which dates back about two weeks and which has greatly agitated the feminist fear here. I hope will, this will be a peak trans moment for some people in France. In France, uh, the development of the word, I, I will speak about the word. Uh, in French, we say feminicide. And uh, in English, I, I think both uh, are allowed. Uh, I will try to say uh, femicide because I, I know it's uh, the mostly used uh, word. So in France, uh, uh, it has been uh, progressively included in the, on the political agenda by the feminist movement. Uh, in France, there is a feminist group of volunteers who since the year uh, 2016 have been carrying out the very difficult task of identifying and counting femicide. This is a count of specific femicides, those committed by a partner or ex-partner. At this stage, it is important to define what a femicide is. It is a murder of a woman because she is a woman. There can be murders of women who are not femicide when the reason is not because they were women. So these crimes will be called homicides. This is a particular crime, a crime of possession, the man considering that his partner belongs to him and gives himself the right to take uh, her life when the woman leaves her partner this is where a lot of femicides take, take place. The man is deprived of his object and decides to suppress it. This corresponds from a feminist point of view to highlighting the reality of male violence, which is certainly everywhere, but particularly important in France in the marital context. This also makes it possible to demonstrate that home is a place of danger for women more than the streets and public spaces, which they try to make us believe are places of danger for women. And that for our good, it is better to stay at home. Uh, these are uh, so very useful statistics to support our request for changes in, in the law and in the means granted to institutions that take care of women victims of male violence. This collective is called Femicide, Feminicide by Companion or Ex. Its goal uh, is therefore perfectly clear. 
This work is done exclusively by women. The, the goal is to highlight the reality of domestic violence in France, the reality of male violence, and to show that sexism is dangerous, that sexism kills. In France, sexism kills about every three days. One woman is murdered by her partner or ex-partner every three days in France. The amount is between 110 and 115 and sometimes more femicides every year. The collectives has therefore given itself the dreadfully difficult task uh, of collecting local press articles, of looking in the newspapers for all the events that could lead one to think that it was a femicide. This enormous work makes it possible to present to the general public the extent of male violence. It really made it possible to introduce the word femicide into everyday vocabulary. The collective makes the necessary researches, their names, their ages, what they liked, what they did for a living, if they had children, they described the circumstances of the murder. It makes that these victims live in the memory of those who do not want to forget. There are descriptions, those of their murder by a man who confused love with possession. It also made it possible to change the media's treatment of femicides. The murders of women were before most often treated in the section of miscellaneous facts in the column passionate drama or under a title such as a dispute that ends badly. The collective regularly challenged the media who indulged in this kind of comment. And it really helped to move the lines. Counting conjugal femicides and talking about them therefore makes it possible to name male violence and to show it. It's important to emphasize that there is no follow-up by legal institutions, police or justice of femicides by partner. Thanks to this collective, the French population, feminist associations have been able to communicate widely on male violence and many demonstrations have taken place for about four years in France on this specific subject and the word femicide has itself entered gradually in vocabulary and in the dictionary. We are fighting now for this crime to be spe specifically recognized in our legal text. This group regularly receives threats, but also pressure and harassment from activists hostile to the women's cause. From the outset, their work, work has been uh, the subject of many critics, such as questioning of the term feminicide, request to count men too, because they were also victims of women, request to count women uh, prostitutes, request to count children, because they are also victims of domestic violence, and it's true. Ask to uh, remove from their account the elderly women killed by their husbands under the pretext of altruistic suicide. Like, for example, the accounts of the newspaper Liberation or the Agence France Presse, 
who then embark on a victim cleaning count and try to discredit them even with the government. Thanks to this work, another feminist movement was also launched in France by the activist Marguerite Stern, who created the street collage. Moreover, at the beginning, her movement was called Collage Feminicide, then evolved into Collage Feminist. She started alone, first in Marseille, then in Paris. Then other women joined her by tens, then by hundreds, and stick everywhere in France and even everywhere in the world slogans against femicides painted in black on white sheets, stuck on the wall to the wall and at night in the street. Unfortunately, this movement it was itself quickly invaded by trans activists who ended up expropriating Marguerite from her work in a very violent way, which is both a scandal and a great suffering for feminists, and of course, a great injustice for Marguerite. Subsequently, they deprived the action from their meaning by sticking slogans less and less understandable by the population, such as trans women are women, uh, uh, based on gender identity, bizarre pronouns, and threats against the so-called TERFs. Here, uh, les TERFs au bûcher means TERFs on the pyre. So it's direct violence. The movement persists, however, through a new collective called L'Amazon and carries out street actions, and in particular, uh, colleges on violence against women, femicides in particular. L'Amazon has from the beginning adopted a charter declaring itself a radical feminist and describing why the movement is only for women and only by women, with women equal, adult, female, human. I am myself uh, part of the college movement. I could largely, largely develop the example as college as a strategy of dispossession and invisibilization of women led by trans activists. But no, that's not the point today. Let's go back to the collective that counts femicides. The collective femicide by companion or ex, uh, which has therefore done so much for the cause of women, for the fight against male violence and for the unification of the feminist movement in France is now attacked for transphobia. How this did that happen? First, there was a tweet from a presidential candidate, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, stating that when elected, he would enter the free gender declaration into the constitution. It's obviously a pure electoral prom promise, surfing on what he believes to be progressivism well advised in this by people around him who are seduced by the trans activist movement. Of course, radical feminists immediately pointed out on social media how absurd and dangerous this proposal is for women's rights. If we cannot track male violence against women, sexism disappears along with women. We cannot, we cannot longer think about male violence. We can no longer even describe our realities. It must be said that on January the 2nd, when, uh, when uh, there were already three femicides recorded in France for uh, 2022, and today we mourn the 7th. 
Following this, a very harmful and very busy trans activist in France named Sasha Anxiety, a student, a sign of Russian billionaires, questioned the fact that a very large feminist collective, Nutut, continues to rely on numbers of this collective to talk about femicide. According to him, it is transphobia. Why? Because this account does not list murders of trans people. The goal is to make people believe that transphobia is a reality in our society and that trans people die and suffer even more than women. By dint of talking about transphobia, people will start to believe that it's a reality, unlike male violence, which will be masked. But in France, we have, and it's a good thing, no femicide of trans people. No more in France than elsewhere, there are people who run after trans people in the streets, shouting, we are going to murder you. This account specializes in tracking femicide by partner or ex-partner. And in France, there has never been a single murder of trans people in a marital context, not a single one. And yet it would be necessary to, to count them for trans visibility and comply with the narrative of the trans activists. No doubt to extend the already derious list of victims of transphobia that trans activists agitate in order to show how oppressed and victimized they are, even during our demonstration to fight for women's rights. In fact, over the past 15 years, there has been 20 trans people murdered in total, just over one per year. And unsurprisingly, it's almost always about people in a situation of prostitution murdered by their clients or their pimps. We do indeed have trans people who are murdered, but uh, they are in situation of prostitution. You should know that in France, we are very proud to be since uh, 2016 an abolitionist country of prostitution. This means that prostitution is seen for what it is, misogynistic violence against women, contrary to human dignity and must be fought. Pimps and clients are in France found guilty of this violence and are penalized. However, as you probably know, prostitution is prized by the trans activist milieu, which is therefore guilty of promoting a deadly and dangerous activity. They prefer to pro promote prostitution, which is the most violent, most dangerous, and above all, the most misogynistic environment. And meanwhile, men are killing women. The femicide by partner or ex account has nevertheless developed an argument explaining that there has never been, since the account existed, conjugal femicide of trans people, and that's why the account did not list any that should have ended the debate. And yet, no. Answer, yes, but uh, these volunteers do not accept to include trans people. For good news measure, the trans activists claim that the collective does not count the femicide of racialized people, and this is obviously false. But it shows that they are ready to do anything to discredit the collective. Not only would these women be transphobic and putophobic, but they also would be racist. The collective Nutut then publishes a series of tweets denouncing the so-called transphobia of the collective 
and the alleged violence of the transphobic remarks made by the collective. They declare that it's both oppressive and illegal and decide to suspend the, the relay of the count of the collective. This decision is a real disaster for women's rights, not because Nutut carries out real actions that improve the condition of women, but because the development of Nutut was done by parasitizing the action of feminist associations and collectives, which Nutut largely exploited. They appropriated the work by communicating widely about, uh, uh, about them without seating them, for example, to the point of becoming uh, almost synonymous with feminism in France for the general public. In the media, we can hear about Nutut demonstration or Nutut count of feminicide when they only use what other women did elsewhere. You should know that, for example, at the time of the controversy, the Facebook page of the Femicide by Companion or X Collective has around uh, 20,000 uh, subscribers, while Nutut has around 200,000. From the start of the work of this collective, Nutut appropriated their work and used it widely without cutting uh, its source. Nutut grew up in the artificial light of the media with, while the collective femicide by Companion or X worked in the shadow. The invisibilization of the collective is truly problematic on an ethical level, obviously, but also because it deprives the collective femicide by Companion of the subscriber that they should have had because of their simple work which is extremely widely dist distributed. The decision of Nutut to stop relaying this count, in reality to stop pretending that they were doing the job, deprives a very large part of the French population of an access to information on femicides. It should be noted, however, that since this event, the Femicide by Companion Collective has gained subscribers, about uh, 15,000, and Nutut has lost some. The decision of Nutut, therefore, very concretely silences the voices of the victim, victims of feminicides. Nutut is okay to make invisible, even to suppress the, the work of this group of women volunteers to promote the transactivist cause. Cause this is cancel culture, and it doesn't stop here. Family planning, one of the oldest and largest feminist associations in France and which is now largely colonized by the transactivist movement, publishes a tweet declaring its solidarity with Nutut. No feminism without the fight against transphobia. No transphobia in feminism. And in this tweet, family planning recalls its support for trans people who are victims of violence. Not a single word about women. The collective femicide by companion or ex then reaffirms it, its position. Uh, our angle of work is the domestic violence. This is the choice we have made and no one has the right to impose another one to us. And for your uh, information, in six years, no trans woman or man has been killed by a partner. The University, uh, Universalist Feminist Association Oser le Feminisme supports the collective, its approach and its anger. French women, politicians too, but a very few of them. 
In France, it's particularly violent and disturbing in a context where freedom of conscience is guaranteed by uh, constitution and by our history. We are a non-religious country. We got rid of the clergy and their dictates. We should be protected against dogmas and religions. And yet, transactivism is becoming the official religion. Whenever women express themselves for what concerns them directly, act for themselves, organize themselves to defend their rights, transactivists consider it as transphobia, harassing women until they succeed in erasing them. This is exactly what is happening in France today. The French feminist movement seems to be deeply divided. In reality, it's not a question of division, but of entryism, of parasitism. We are suffering from a huge, deadly patriarchal backlash. On the one hand, there are feminist associations that are still resisting, whether or not they display anti-career positions. Some are silent for their fear reprisals or are under threats. And on the other hand, there are long-term feminists who did not see the danger coming, seduced by liberal feminism, are parasitized by young activists who have emptied the words of their content and who are completely masculinist today because they are victims of transactivist entryism like Nutut or like family planning. The great battle remains to be fought. We've got Anna Cleves and Leila Namarkton, and Anna is going to introduce both of both of them for us. So uh, they're both from the UK and going to give us some updates on a range of things. So thank you so much, Anna, and over to you. I'm going to tell you about some activism that Leila and I have been involved in. Um, Leila has been active in women's rights throughout her life, from transporting supplies to the Green and Common Women, who many of you will remember, to setting up Rape Crisis Centre. She's an experienced mental health practitioner, both in nursing and in advocacy. Uh, I've been a science teacher and obviously I've promoted um, opportunities for girls in my professional life. I've been involved in unions, which as you know, are incredibly misogynistic. And I'm currently involved in a project in Ghana um, to get girls to go back to school uh, after the COVID lockdowns because a lot of the girls have been recruited in the um, farming and, um, and household uh, arena. Um, I was asked in a meeting recently, what activist things have you done? Got me thinking about what was meant by activism. Well, it's any activity that furthers a cause. You are all members of an audience which is sensitized to the issue. But the webinars here have shown that many women all over the world woke up to the gender identity, identity ideology threat very, very late, only in recent years. And we know that gender ideology is everywhere. Anne Harper Wright put it like this. Gradually, people are waking up to the fact that gender is now enshrined in law in many countries, sex has been downgraded, and our legal rights are changing. And we missed the memo. 
It was recently reported that 80% of people who think they are the opposite sex are unemployed. A man let it slip because he couldn't afford his breast augmentations. He needed breasts to be able to pass. As what? I really don't know. The volunteer as uh, activists of gender identity ideology have got therefore plenty of time. So we need to alert as many people as possible to the threat to women's rights of gender ideology. WDI, as this organization is now called, is a great resource for informing us of the issues and we're affiliated to 418 organizations. Plenty of opportunities then. You may not be the face of the organization. You may not be mounting legal challenges like the wonderful Cara Dansky or um, women like Ambra in Spain who started to reach out to ordinary people who were absolutely disbelieving that a law was pending to force women to accept that a man can declare a gender identity and call himself a woman. These people can be persuaded to watch the YouTube to sign a petition, to write to their representatives, and of course they vote. Whether you are asked to participate in a demonstration, sign a petition, for example, about women's refugees, or contribute whatever you can afford. In the UK, you've heard obviously of Women's Declaration International and Keep Prison Single Sex. I had uh, dinner last night with a woman who talked about Keep Prison Single Sex, and I said to her, there's a crowdfunder going on at the moment. Can you afford to put in a fiver? Because if a thousand people put in a fiver, they'd have a bit of money. Transgender trend for parents to challenge the illegal teaching and arrangements in schools. I've alerted loads of parents to that organization. Sex matters, of course, have come in much later, but they've been pretty effective. We need to engage with government organizations, statutory bodies, such as the Equal Opportunities Commission, universities, and the UN. Because they have power, because they have influence. The gender identity movement realized this a long, long time ago. You may not agree with many of the issues that these people defend, but it is obvious you have to inform and lobby the powerful and the influential. Now, what have I learned from webinars about you know, uh, uh, transmitting this information. The debate is not about trans rights. I must avoid being derailed by gender identity issues. The issue is the erosion of women's and girls' sex-based rights. I've learned not to use the language of gender identity and to oppose it whenever I see it. 20 years ago, I would have accepted the term, term tra trans child because I didn't know any different. So for example, some private girls' schools are sticking to their single sex policy. So how was this reported? Uh, in the local newspaper, it was reported that um, the school is not accepting trans pupils. Ridiculous. The latter description of it makes the school look bad. Even though the law is on their side, the government guidance in UK schools says, no child shall be taught that they can be born in the wrong body, 2018. And you can look it up and that's on the internet. Layla and I have been involved in UK government consultations. Anyone can answer these. A recent one was about conversion therapy. 
The questions are dreadfully constructed, strongly influenced by groups which subscribe to the affirmation model of gender identity. I say I'm a girl so I can go through a clinic and get my gender identity confirmed and get all the hormones and mutilations that I want. Now, your first reaction when you look at this, as was mine, is I don't want to be involved in this rubbish. But I think we must. Otherwise, we'll be seen as not having any concerns. There's no opposition to this. One consultation question, I'll give you an example. For balance, changing a person from being transgender or to being transgender becomes a criminal offence. Really? This is another sinister attempt to criminalise the watchful waiting approach for people, particularly children, and promote the acceptance of you are who you say you are. Not only do you answer the question, you also have to point out the flaws. Now, I know that many women, many people, but particularly women, are extremely busy. But I think in the absence, the absence of women's voices that we've had for so long, we need to grab every opportunity. The WDI submission is on the word website, and I urge you to answer as many questions as you can manage. The um, consultation is not closed until February the 4th, so that's another 13 days that you've got. Now, prior to this, this consultation is closed, but I'm just trying to illustrate, you know, opportunity. Uh, it was on women's health. Now, in the introduction to the consultation, the then Minister of Health, to his credit, recognise that we have a male default model of healthcare. We realised we could bring our research on single sex accommodation into the in the hospitals. Layla will explain this. Also, the rights of the child in the light of the 4,000 fold increase in girls being rushed through gender identity clinics, pending mutilations and wrong sex hormones. This is currently being investigated. Girls' health and mental welfare are being impacted by being forced to do sports with boys in schools and colleges, the extensive medical harms of surrogacy, all well documented and very, very well evidenced, and the NHS picks up the tab. The cost to patients and NHS alike of detransitioning and the consultation responses on the WDI website. I know that it's closed, but it just shows how you can just, you know, um, use it. I mean, I don't know anything about um, the situation. I know that, you know, other situations in hospital. I know that, for example, um, black women are four times more likely to die in, in childbirth. But, you know, I don't have the time to do a lot about that. But I can write about what I do know. I doubt with the, whether the gender identity cult, cult said anything in, in this consultation. So to reiterate my message, do what you can when you can, spread the word and encourage people to sign the declaration. The subject matter of which I'm going to engage with this afternoon is a bit tricky. It's very convoluted. And, but what it does show uh, and what I want to assert is that uh, the gender lobby's sleight of hand uh, with regards to the NHS in the UK is what I would consider to be maladministration. The issues contravene the Equality 2010 Act, and they are trying and have tried for the past 20 years, quite shockingly, to replace the UK NHS recording 
from uh, sex to gender. And they're being very, very successful at this until very recently when uh, other organizations have stepped in to point this out. To just reflect very quickly on the single sex accommodation issues and research that we did, the Equality Act 2010 makes it quite clear that sex is a protected characteristic in this country. Gender reassignment is also a protected characteristic, but single sex spaces can be justified. And gender is not one of the nine characteristics of our Gender Equality Act. In the 1970s and 80s, uh, men and women in this country through various organizations uh, lobbied uh, the government at the time uh, to reinstate single sex wards. There were so many complaints and this was a 30 year campaign that we were uh, led to believe was going to be resolved. And by 2012, we had a pledge from the government, which all hospitals had to demonstrate they had it, that single sex wards would be the most optimum that men and women could expect when they entered inpatient services of the hospital. All well and good. So the public were led to believe that single sex was back and available. Mixed sex was no longer the issue. In 2019, however, there was a review of the policy and Annex B was added to the guidance, resulting in the introduction of policies using the term gender identity rather than gender reassignment, which has caused utter confusion within the NHS and the way in which it's dealing with this issue to the detriment of both men and women, women and men, girls and boys. As our research demonstrates. <laughs> At this point, I am reminded, and I think we've always got to keep reminding ourselves, what is the truth? And in a recent thing I was listening to on the radio, uh, a Sherlock Holmes mystery actually, Watson himself, uh, was in a muddle on a case and when and he explains this his muddle and Sherlock says to him well when you eliminate the impossible what's left is nothing but the truth and so here we are humans cannot change sex that is the truth sex is the material tr truth and changing sex is impossible so as I went on uh, pursuing further lines of inquiry, I wondered how single sex accommodation had fared during the pandemic. And I found out that um, the data for breaches was suspended in March, 2020, and then uh, allegedly was to be resumed in October, 21. During this period of time, I had picked up various complaints from women on Twitter who had shared wards and I expect we can say, well, to be fair, uh, during the pandemic, uh, those sort of things would be suspended to make bed efficiencies more, more able to cope with the influx of people. Um, the data collection that I have seen for October 2021, there are clear breaches and there's been a sharp spike, which we might expect. However, um, I noticed some research on the setting up of the policy 
uh, to eliminate mixed sex accommodation. And this goes all the way back to when the policy was first put together. And our 2011, 2011 statement uh, setting out the policy. The data supports the collection of consistently defined data on breaches of mixed sex accommodation, but the policy committed relates to gender, not sex. But to ensure a better understanding for the public, it was floated as mixed, as, as uh, referred to as mixed sex, with the abolition of mixed sex into single sex. I'm sure you're following all this because it's highly confusing. There is a confusion in the policy and in the data sets. Now, I don't know much about technology, technological data sets that are held by computers. So you're diving into a minefield here. So there are pledges to do with single sex accommodation, which started when the policy was written. Trans activity, we now know, has already been in there from 2010. And some people allege long before that. Some people are now arguing that this was a post effect of the, gen the Gender Recognition Act in 2004-05, that gender was now going to be considered as the major source for data collection for the NHS rather than sex. I wanted further information because I couldn't make a lot of sense of any of this. So I sent an email to the NHS data NHS uh, for further information. I ask simple question, how is data on single sex accommodation collected and collated to monitor breaches of single sex accommodation in acute settings? What was in what what information was gathered on the was was the information gathered on the basis of uh, biological sex or gender? And how was this to be disseminated and made sense of? when actually using the data to uh, plan NHS and discriminative practices that may be in the NHS regarding operations and patient care and treatment. I had a response within, well, I wrote it in the evening and in the morning I had a response. An analytical support officer from the NHS uh, improvement or the Office of National S Statistics, as it's now, he directed me to the NHS statistics site, and he also added uh, Annex B 2019 because he said that would help me understand things a great deal better. And when I scrolled down, I noticed that he'd already got his pronouns in there, he, him, and his. So that was a red flag to me. All NHS funded care, which is part of the pledge, is supposed to prioritize safety, privacy, and dignity of all patients. And all reporting of breach of accommodation became mandatory and should align with the Equality Act of 2010, where sex is a protected characteristic, but it doesn't. The he, his, him went on to explain, and I quote, that the Annex B details policy to anyone whose personal experience of gender extends beyond the typical experience of their assigned birth. So now we've introduced the word assigned at birth. So what's happening? Very odd sentence. Advice on admission of a patient uh, in, uh, contained within Annex B is also rather odd. 
It's impossible to establish the view of the patient because he or she, note that they don't use pronoun uh, bleakness, they, they don't use they, them, drawn from address. So when, when you don't know, if someone comes in unconscious, the first thing you must know is, is what they're dressed like, and that gives you apparently lots of clues about who they are. Um, we must not, um, we can take inferences from that apparently. We mustn't investigate their genitals, but however, so many unconscious patients in my long years of experience require catheterization. So there you are right there as you have it. You know, you're going to be, you're going to be uh, aware of the genital differences or not as the case may be. So I um, then get worried about other information about um, things that are told that nurses have to do and that they have to assess transgender patients on the basis of a case by case. And as a recent article last year in the um, Telegraph outline, what nurses under conditions of any situation, whether in this country or elsewhere, has time to do case-by-case -case basis on people who they might have issues with or concerns about. So I responded to uh, my interloper on this and asked um, more questions. How is data collected? Is it sex or gender? Very easy to tell me. Where can I access the format for this collection? And are patients recorded on the basis of their sex male or female, or by their declared gender, women, men, other. And why is this deviation um, not called um, uh, breaches of single sex, but actually breaches of mixed sex accommodation? It's a very confusing issue. So far, and this was from Tuesday this week, I haven't had a response to my further question. The sleight of hand in which you see gender ideology influence was to make the policy about gender and then pretend that it was following the law, Equality 2010. A 30-year campaign was just pushed to one side. This doesn't make sense and in fact is a breach of single-sex accommodation, but when gender is a marker, not sex, and biological males can now enter women's single sex places and nobody knows how many and what the rationale is. We don't know because as I moved on uh, with my consideration, I looked at data sets and data sets have been changed over a period of years starting in around 2004 uh, and post the Gender Recognition Act. All data collected by the uh, single sex now has been retired, as they call it, on, on the computers since February 2014. Mixed sex data collection has also ceased, and so has combined data, sex gender data, has been uh, retired, as they call it, on the computers. Now data forms part of the government's statistical services. It's moved away from its original home to now being part of the Gov statistical services. Data collected on the basis of gender uh, one is defined and gender assigned at birth. We've now moved from sex to gender and we've moved from sex observed at birth to gender ascribed or assigned. 
And Anne Harper write in her articles, uh, which can be found on the uh, web on the website, very easy to, to collect. And as far as we're concerned, uh, she went and asked for her how her sex or gender was being recorded. She got that information and she found that she was the, the identity code that was meant to be set up by the NHS to distinguish between sex and gender because they said that couldn't be tolerated. Then it turns out that her sex is not recorded, but her gender is. So we have a gender identity, what we call codes. And the first code is male, which includes uh, women uh, who identify as trans. The second code is female, which is uh, Tim's, includes Tim's. The third one is non-binary. And the other, number four is other, and then number five is not stated. So, so these gender ID and the same for birth, as I've said, indicator. Code, there's three codes for that. Yes, which means identified as the same gender assigned at birth. No means gender identity not the same as assigned at birth. And Z is declined to respond. So the there's so much evidence out there now. Fair play for women because they have a lot on their website about all of this, which I think is very, very interesting. There is other information, but I think it's a bit late in the day and we've heard lots and lots of really great information today and I don't want to take up too much more time. Fair Play have challenged the government on this gender sex being replaced by gender. And I think it would be in our interests, um, women, women's WDI to join in because there is going to be further discussion about the reintroduction of sex as the marker, not gender. So Fair Play have uh, challenged the Department of Health, has delivered recommendations for change, and the NHS have said there's going to be stakeholder in, engagement, which will take place uh, at a specified time that haven't said yet. This was uh, this was announced in October last year. So we are waiting, I guess, waiting to hear when this has happened because when when the Gender Recognition Act was um, made law and they started to change sex to gender, there was only the stakeholders involved were organisations that had. Uh, um, influenced by trans and by Stonewall. Also, um, Fair Play have engaged with the Office of uh, Statistics, the regulator, uh, and had meetings with the Director General there to raise concerns about the necessity and the value of collecting data based on sex. And that overlooking sex is a great, great disservice uh, to the NHS uh, public users. This may represent a breach of the ONRS code of conduct of practice, which I would just have described in my opening speeches as what I would call um, misadministration. Uh, 
it is maladministration to replace sex with gender without any kind of discussion whatsoever in the public domain. And what the meeting is seeking is a unified information standard. For, they're also uh, wanting to engage with the Equal Human Rights Commission as the NHS is obliged to follow public sector equality duty and must demonstrate equal regard for all protected characteristics. And gender, as I've said previously, is not a protected characteristic, only gender reassignment should play a greater role in the ensuring that data collection is based primarily on sex, could have been argued that the current data sets are discriminative on the basis of sex. The propaganda that's been around for the past 10 years from Stonewall or since 2015 uh, has been that sex, <laughs> it's illegal. According to Stonewall, it's illegal to have data based on sex. 